Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. In the next 15 years, we will eliminate in the state of California the sales of internal combustion engines. Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order this week banning the sale of gas-powered cars and trucks by 2035 and recommending a ban on the use of hydraulic fracturing by oil companies. Environmentalists say a step in the right direction, but still more needs to be done to combat climate change. Others worry about the affordability of zero-emission cars and whether enough charging stations exist to support this transition. We'll talk with experts about what this might mean for how we get around. And that's next, after this news. Welcome to this morning's Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In an effort to wean California off its carbon dependency, Governor Gavin Newsom has issued an executive order to ban sales of new gas-powered uh, gas vehicles by 2035. The state's Air Resources Board will work out the details. It's a big move, but environmentalists say it's not big enough to slow climate change. And we're going to hear from energy experts about what else will have to change to accommodate all those electric and battery-powered cars on the road and how the market might be different next time you head out to kick some tires. We're talking about the ban, and let me tell you who is joining us for the hour. Russ Mitchell is automotive reporter with the LA Times, and welcome to the program. Good to have you. Glad to be here. Uh, thank you, and we're also glad to have uh, Ethan Elkin back with us uh, on Forum. He's director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at the UC Berkeley School of Law and host of a new podcast called Climate Break. Welcome, Ethan, <laughs> welcome, Ethan Elkin. Thank you, Michael. Good to be back. Glad to have you. And later on, we'll be joined by Catherine Reese Boyd, who's president of Western States Petroleum Association, and Gladys Lamont, who is executive director of California Environmental Justice Alliance. But, Ethan, let me begin with you, and let's begin by just saying that this will be the first time in the United States uh, of a program of this sort that's put forward by Governor Newsom, and he's challenging other state governors to follow suit here. The real question that hovers over it all is... Um, What's this going to do about climate change? And I've read estimates of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by over a third. It's pretty significant. Oh, it's, it's really significant for the environment and climate change, no doubt about that. So in California, almost half of our greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation. Most of that is passenger vehicles, but also trucks as well. 
And then if you factor in oil refinery emissions as well to produce the fuel for these vehicles, that's how you get to the 50% the figure just in California. It's not quite as high nationwide, but basically if we're going to have any chance of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and addressing climate change, we have to make this transition to electric vehicles, zero emission vehicles. And this order is very significant uh, for, for that reason. But I, I would say that the Industry is already going in this direction anyways. So in a lot of ways, this is just sort of putting on steroids the policy direction that California already has in place and that many other uh, states have joined California to set and uh, countries around the world. So the European Union, China, they already have aggressive goals to make this transition. And I think this finally puts California on track with where the rest of the world is going and does send an important signal to other states and to the federal government that this is the direction that, that we need to go and we need policy support to get there. Well, there still are many questions, though, particularly about things like infrastructure and so forth, but I want to sort of have you outline for us what is in this executive order, if you would, because uh, uh, the governor apparently thought it couldn't go through the legislature. Uh, he signed this, by the way, on the hood of a red electric Ford Mustang, uh, talking about, the, again, the necessity of getting uh, electric-powered cars here. But um, the Air Resources Board is going to have to develop a plan and a plan for more zero emission vehicles leading up to 2035. What do you anticipate along those lines? Well, it's important to note that the Air Resources Board actually already has some mandates on the auto industry to sell a certain number of of uh, zero emission vehicles as part of their sales in California. So that's why you've seen companies like Tesla locate here in California. That's why you see a lot of electrics on the road. Uh, we have a market share. Recent sales have been almost up to 10% of new vehicle sales have been zero emission. The Tesla Model 3 was actually the number one selling car in California in the first quarter of this year. So the Air Resources Board has already put in place requirements. And what this executive order is doing is now saying to the Air Resources Board, it's great what you've got so far, but you need to ramp this up to get to 100% by, by 2035 of zero emission vehicles. And so, as I said, it's really putting California policy on steroids. Um, but the thing is, for this to go forward, uh, it needs uh, approval and a waiver from the federal government, because for California to go beyond federal standards, that's, that's a big deal. The Clean Air Act allows the state to do it, but only with approval from the EPA. So that's why in the executive order, it says that the Air Resources Board should put forth these regulations consistent with state and federal law. So it's going to be up to the lawyers at the Air Resources Board to figure out how they can make that happen and, and pass muster with the EPA and probably eventually the Supreme Court where this will, will get litigated. Uh, but I wanted to mention a few other things about the executive order. It's, it's gotten a lot of the headlines that we're going to be phasing out internal combustion engines by 2035 for passenger vehicles. But there's also information and direction in the executive order around heavy and medium duty trucks and buses, which also have to go zero emission by 2045. And those are sources of not just greenhouse gas emissions, but major air pollution uh, throughout California. So it has a huge impact on our air quality and, and public health. And there's also some direction in there around potentially scaling back how much fossil fuel production is going to be happening in California. There's nothing specific in there, but there's some directions to the agencies that regulate fossil fuel production to come up with a plan by the end of this year and then again in, in mid next year to basically what, what I how I read it to create setbacks so that oil production can't happen close to schools and housing and playgrounds, et cetera. Uh, so there's some other details in executive order that I think have gotten overlooked but are, are just as important in some ways as the, uh, the, the fossil fuel engine phase out.
Yeah, thank you for bringing those to our attention. In fact, I want to go to Russ Mitchell and find out exactly what's included here. Russ, this also includes battery-powered, uh, powered, I keep saying powdered, battery-powered uh, electric cars and vehicles that operate on hydrogen fuel cells, but it doesn't necessarily prohibit, in fact, it does not prohibit uh, gasoline cars from being sold or being used on the highways and the roadways. Well, it, it, it will ban the uh, sale of new gasoline uh, cars by uh, 2035. The, uh, All I'm asking, though, is the, the ones that are already there can stay there. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. Um, nobody's going to be taking away your uh, gasoline-powered uh, car. You just won't be able to buy one in California. You may be able to buy one in uh, Nevada or Arizona, depending on uh, what kind of policies uh, uh, they set. You'll also be able to sell your gasoline car to somebody else, a uh, used car in uh, California. I'm not quite clear on how this uh, would affect uh, used car dealerships, but I would guess that you'd still be able to uh, uh, buy a, a gasoline car to used car uh, dealership. Uh, but this is only new car sales. There's a statement that was put out by the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, Russ. Uh, that's the trade association. And uh, they're saying that the governor's executive order will not increase uh, consumer demand for electric cars without significant rebates. Uh, that seems to be the sort of collective wisdom for many who seem to at least be weighing in on this. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, almost anybody agrees at this point uh, incentives are needed if you're going to increase the market share of uh, zero emission cars. At some point, uh, the battery costs will get low enough that uh, they will be competitive with gasoline cars. Some predict that'll be 2025, some a little bit later in the decade, uh, but battery costs are decreasing and, and, and that day is coming. Well, so there the are time. fewer than 6% of electric cars uh, sold last year with zero emission, uh, were zero, fewer 6% were zero emission vehicles. Um, you're going to have to get those consumer numbers up. Uh, thoughts about that and how that would take place? Yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> that's in California. And nationwide, it's 2%. Around the world, it's 2.8%. Yeah, we're heavier than everybody else. That's right. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, electric cars, the most recent uh, statistics show a uh, 5.8% uh, pure electric cars and 2% uh, plug-in hybrids. So a uh, total of 7.8%. Uh, of course, the plug-in uh, hybrids can also be run on gasoline at times. So the pure, pure uh, zero emission cars are less than 6% in California uh, right now. It's going to have to uh, become a lot more popular uh, in order to, to meet these targets. You know, they're going to have to get uh, consumer numbers up in terms of purchases. And uh, Ethan Elkin, let me go to you on this, uh, something that Russ just mentioned. Uh, first of all, electric vehicles are expensive, but Governor Newsom, who's kind of a wonk on these sorts of things, uh, says that this is something that Russ mentioned. Uh, battery technology is going to bring the price down. That seems to be certainly, again, what the collective wisdom seems to be saying, but they're going to have to be more affordable and they're going to have to be not only more affordable, but they're, as I said, have to be rebates and incentives, don't they? Have to be in part of it? I mean, that, that would definitely help, particularly in the short term. And, and Russ mentioned that a lot of analysts think that we're going to get to parity in costs between internal combustion engines and battery electric vehicles by 2025. But even that actually may be too conservative. I mean, given the amazing progress that we've seen in battery technology and price decreases. It's come down about 80% in price over the last 10 years. We may hit cost parity even sooner than 2025. So perhaps by 2022, 2023, automakers are literally planning hundreds of electric vehicles 
optical models uh, that will eventually be, be sold. It takes about 10 years to develop a new model from sort of concept to, to factory production. So a lot of this is taking a while and the auto industry was slow to embrace battery electrics. It was really Tesla that sort of pushed them in that direction along with policy like in, in places like California. I mean, obviously if we put this ban in place right now, it would not be feasible economically or really even technologically for a lot of people. We don't have the charging stations out there. But by 2035, the auto industry is already going in this direction. There will be hundreds of models available. And I think actually most people will save a lot of money driving an electric vehicle. You know, your fuel and maintenance costs combined, some of the research I've seen, it's about half of what you'd spend on an internal combustion engine. You know, my, I've been driving an electric car, not, not an expensive Tesla one, but uh, a, a Nissan Leaf since 2013. I've calculated that I've saved about 10 grand in gasoline costs in that vehicle. So it's basically paid for about half of the cost of the vehicle. So even right now, there's huge savings that people need to factor in in terms of fuel and maintenance. But definitely by 2035, rebates and incentives will be, will be nice to have and important to have, especially to recognize the environmental benefits. But I think the cost is getting there anyways. We're talking uh, possibly, Russ Mitchell, about a whole reconfiguration of the nation's car market, as you see it? Yeah, it's a radical change. It's the uh, it, 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 it accounts for the biggest change in the automobile market since uh, the automobile was was introduced. Uh, electric car uh, powertrains are very different from uh, internal combustion powertrains. Um, there's an entire uh, supply chain system that's been dedicated to uh, what's what are known as ICE vehicles, internal combustion engines. Um, dealerships are geared for this. They make a lot of service money. Uh, as Ethan just mentioned, uh, the uh, service and maintenance uh, costs that are applied to uh, gasoline engines uh, mean profits for dealers. Uh, those are likely to be uh, reduced as we go forward. Again, Russ Mitchell is automotive reporter with the LA Times. Ethan Elkine is also with us, director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law and host of a new podcast called Climate Break. If you'd like to add your voice to this discussion, we'd like to hear from you. And if you have questions or comments, we'd also like to hear from you. What do you think about the move to ban gas-powered gas powered vehicles by 2035? Are you ready to make the switch to an electric car? Give us a call now. You can join us at 866-733-6786. That's toll-free, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about Governor Newsom's ban on gas-powered vehicles by 2035. And Catherine Reese Boyd joins us now. She's president of the Western States Petroleum Association. And welcome, Catherine Reese Boyd. Good to have you back with us. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. Uh, I'm wondering what your response is to this. But before we get to your response about the ban itself, uh, Governor Newsom has been criticized uh, by particularly environmentalists for uh, not doing more on oil and gas drilling. And uh, the legislators uh, have been asked by the governor, this was mentioned, to pass a law ending um, new permits for fracking by 2024. But you have Scott Weiner and a number of other legislators who are pushing for something much sooner than that. They want to phase out fossil fuels entirely, perhaps, but they also want uh, something done about fracking immediately. And I'd like to get your response to that. Yes, thank you. And and I think what's really important is to put this in context because of it, it, it the policies that we 
in, in vision here cannot be based on emotion or fears. They have to be based on facts. And you know, I'm a big fact science person. So when I look at these issues and the complex problems, I really look at you know where are we and where do we want to go and what is that going to take. And so when you've got 760,000 electric vehicles, but you've got 36 million cars and trucks who run on gasoline and diesel, let alone aviation, who runs on obviously uh, jet fuel, that is a huge gap between 760,000 EVs and you know 36 million. Um, internal combustion engines. And so as you look at that, you say, well, obviously in the time frame we're talking, and frankly, it's going to be way more than 2035 to reach these goals because that gap is too, too large and the math just doesn't work. A plus B still has to equal C. And in my opinion, this timeline is, is not um, realistic. So I always look for real talk in complex problems. And I think what I'm concerned about is that the vision of the timeline is somehow uh, achievable at these high rates, given the gap that we see. And so when people say, let's, let's not extract crude oil from the ground so we can make gasoline and diesel, the only other way you get crude oil, Michael, during this transition is from a marine tanker from places that don't particularly share our values and definitely don't have the environmental um, uh, restrictions that California has. We produce, as you know, crude oil in the most environmentally friendly way uh, in the world uh, because of California's very strict regulations. So Envision not producing California oil, is the governor actually then supporting in the interim, while he still has to supply gasoline and diesel to 36 million cars and trucks, is he actually saying he wants to have more foreign imports during this period from Iraq from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, from Colombia, from Venezuela. Because I can guarantee you the increase in greenhouse gas emissions from that scenario is a lot larger than being able to produce crude oil here during this period in an effective, environmentally safe way, getting the tax revenues, employing people at the highest wages that anyone in this state has, and quality of life. And so that's what I say. I don't, I don't question California's leadership in the transition. What I question is the real talk that we have to have of the unintended consequences or intended consequences and the affordability of the proposal in this timeline. You're also talking about plausibility, I think, as well as affordability when you use the facts and orchestrate them the way you do. I'm wondering, though, what you say to the argument. Uh, I mean, the state has a goal of clean, reliable energy by 2045. That's pretty clear. Um, and you've heard the argument, the big polluters, uh, the fossil fuel polluters are causing greater climate change. And the greater climate change is uh, not only an air pollution crisis, but it's a crisis in uh, what we have seen in wildfires. And oil drilling uh, is, is having, so the argument goes, this terrible impact on particularly frontline communities, millions in California suffering from the ill effects of living near oil and, uh, and gas drilling. Uh, this is, in many people's minds, something that translates into urgency, the necessity for something drastic, something radical, something urgent? I think when you're talking radical, drastic, and urgent, you also have to do the flip side of that. What happens if you don't produce crude oil here? And what are you really saying about that from a climate change perspective? As you know, we are less than 1%, less than 1% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world. How much economic harm are you going to bring on the communities and citizens of California for less than 1% so you can say you're a leader? 
China has 25% of the emissions that have to be dealt with. They even have a carbon neutrality goal of 2060. And they have 25%. Anything we do here will dwarf what has to be done by other countries in the space of climate change. And I think when you look at wildfires, you know, it's easy to say that, yes, climate change is an impact on that. And I would say I agree with that. However, the biggest impact on wildfires in California has been the poor forest waste management practices that people have been screaming about for years. The amount of biomass that's on the floors of these areas that are burning could be collected and turned into renewable energy, could have been 10 years ago. But we're not allowed to do that because from the environmental standpoint, we can't go into the forest or into these rural areas because that disrupts habitat. All of these are complex questions and complex answers. And I'm, and I the thing I think that really, Michael, got to me during the, the executive order announcement was just the, the lack of, of the concentration on sort of affordability and and painting that that somehow electricity is cheaper and free. When you look at where where do you get the sources of energy for electric batteries? It's lithium, it's cobalt, it's gold, it's silver, it's nickel, all from mother earth. So to say we don't have to extract from the earth to do our transportation fuels, of course we do. And of course we do in the electricity market. And where do those things come from? We don't, we're not rich in the United States in lithium. We had the biggest probably potential find in Nevada recently. And the Center for Biological Diversity is against exploring for lithium in, in Nevada. So where is this coming from? The Congo, where they use child labor to extract lithium and iron, uh, lithium and cobalt for the purposes of electric batteries. China is rich in it. So are we going to be dependent on other countries? I only point these out not to say that this is not doable. I do it to say, where is the real conversation and the transparency from a greenhouse gas, from an affordability, from what the challenges we will be up against? And to say we should stop California production as we transition points me to all the wrong policies and answers from a greenhouse gas perspective. So. That's why I, I, I get frustrated with the conversation, not because the goals aren't laudable, not because we're not transitioning. All my companies I represent are all in on this. Two of them announced changes from refineries to renewable diesel, new, renewable das, natural gas. They got criticized from the environmental community, from Center for Biological Diversity for doing that. I mean, what I don't even understand what that means. Why would anyone criticize that? So, and, and then my last grief, which you'll hear my frustration in my voice, is if we're really serious about getting carbon out of the atmosphere, can we please move on with carbon capture, sequestration, and, and storage, CCUS? It is a very good technology. It's been in place forever. 18 facilities are running in the world. Zero of them are in California. We have the geology to take carbon and put it underground. It is the single most thing we can do if we are really serious about climate change. And we started this conversation in 2010. I was on that Blue Ribbon Commission and we have done nothing. 
Nothing. You've also been on the program talking about sequestration for a number of years now. Um, yes. But so it's uh, you know, I have to, I'm actually looking at a comment from a listener, uh, and I want to get back to fracking for a moment because I think that's very much on people's minds. Uh, and it's an environmental justice issue, as I'm sure you're aware, because you've got methane and you've got water pollution, and the effect is much greater on poor communities and those who are closest to the oil fields and the refineries. I'm looking at a comment from a listener named Holly who says, I appreciate the forum presents different points of view, including on California's climate policies. However, uh, Reese Boyd and the WSPA she represents is not a valid critic. They are against anything that curbs oil and gas, period. What do you say to Holly? I would say, Holly, I appreciate your um, views and I certainly respect them. I don't assert that they are true. Because, as I said, many of our companies are invested in all of the things we're talking about here, including research and develop on, on lithium-ion batteries. We probably put more research dollars in this area than anyone, the federal government, the state government. So we're all over this. Our companies look forward as to what they are going to be, what they were in the past, what they are now, and what they're going to be in the future. I do not also agree with the assertion that we have um, heavy environmental impacts from any kind of of production of crude oil. These regulations that are upon everything we do demand that no water quality is impacted, demand that we do not have, we don't even allow flaring in the state of California. There are no emissions from flaring. That stopped a long time ago. We're now starting to power, um, you know, the oil fields with solar. So there's so much advancement on the oil and gas side. I'm not saying we've always been perfect, but I am saying that these regulations are very strong. The state did a whole analysis from a independent scientific community as to the effects of hydraulic fracturing in the state of California and did not find the environmental impacts that are being asserted. So a lot of it again, and I understand the fear and emotion that goes around many of these things. I look at facts and data and science. And when I'm looking at these reports done by the state of California and the conclusions from them, yes, can improvements be made, but they are not at the level that that is being said here and asserting that we need to stop crude oil in California tomorrow. I, I don't see it. I just do not see the data that supports that. Oh, we'll leave it there. Kathy, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. It's Kathy Rehais Boyd, who is president of the Western States Petroleum Association. We'll be hearing later from a leading environmentalist. And uh, let's hear first from a caller. Sophie joins us. Sophie, you're on the air. Good morning. Hi. Yeah. Um, so my husband and I bought an all-electric car in February. It was a Volkswagen e-Golf. And we're renters in San Francisco. Our house is built in the 20s. And when we got home, we didn't realize that the electrical wiring in our house didn't support the charging capacity. And it would actually short circuit. <laughs> So um, we sadly ended up having to um, buy into an, an all-gas car, um, mostly, well, for a few reasons. Obviously, corona hit, we weren't commuting, and we didn't have the charging capacity at my husband's office anymore. But um, just there, we only had one car, and there were just concerns about, um, I don't know, getting out of the city. But also, we just really couldn't, the house didn't support charging the car. So being that we're renters, I'm curious what... Um, I mean, if there's any sort of ideas about how to help, uh, I guess, just how to upgrade our electrical system and also, you know, people that are living in apartments, like how do you charge cars in, in like an urban dwelling environment? Uh, Sophie, you're raising uh, a very important question, and I want to go to Ethan Elkine on this. We should mention, by the way, that electric cars are not, of course, 
without uh, a carbon imprint as well. Uh, there seems to be some confusion about that. But electric vehicles, uh, we're going to need more charging ports. It's that simple. Uh, the order calls for speeding up the development, uh, the deployment of charging stations, doesn't it, Ethan? Yeah, that's one of the major challenges to getting to this 2035 goal. And I think Sophie is, uh, unfortunately, one of the toughest cases for trying to uh, address the, the charging needs. It's someone like, like Sophie living in an apartment. And I, the, the long-term goal here, because it, it is challenging to upgrade you know, electrical capacity in each of these buildings, I think the long-term goal is that for folks living in apartment buildings that don't have access to a dedicated parking spot and can't charge for whatever reason at home, is basically to replicate the gas station model and to have a network of fast charging uh, electric vehicle charging stations that with the technology improving the way it is, eventually we'll be able to refuel electric vehicles about as fast, maybe even faster in 15 years time as, as a gas station would take someone to charge. And also there is workplace charging where you could charge for you know the day while you're working there or maybe the morning and get a full battery that way. So for folks that can't charge at home, the goal really is to have more public charging stations and replicate that gas station model. And also in the long run, we're looking at potentially four or five 500, 600 mile range batteries, people are going to need to refuel, uh, you know, pretty infrequently. So that's, that's the sort of the long-term picture for charging, but there's no question that this is the big challenge for California to get more charging stations deployed. And, and real quick with uh, Michael on your point about the carbon imprint or carbon footprint of electric vehicles, you know, Kathy was mentioning all the impacts from batteries, but the fact is that if plenty of analyses have been done on the life cycle greenhouse gas impacts of electric vehicles compared to internal combustion. And there's no question they are a massive savings in greenhouse gas emissions, anywhere from 50 to 80 or 90 percent savings in greenhouse gas emissions. It just depends on your electricity grid. Here in California, it's a very clean electricity grid. But even with those local impacts from mining, lithium, cobalt, et cetera, and I should also add that cobalt is being phased out in most electric vehicle batteries, so that, that's a conflict-type uh, mineral that, that is fading out. But even with that in, those local impacts, the environmental benefits of switching to, internal, uh, to electric vehicles over internal combustion engines are just without question. So I just don't want listeners to come No, I don't want there like, to be any confusion on that. And thank you for that clarification. I don't mean to suggest that there's something comparable there. But uh, you're going to need a much bigger grid, and you're going to need more power generation. And it could raise the power demand. Uh, some are estimating there was an article about this in the Wall Street Journal by as much as 25%. But I'm wondering if we can get back to uh, charging ports uh, for, uh, for just a moment. Uh, California Energy Commission says we were about 81,600 fewer than are needed by 2025. That's a pretty staggering figure, Ethan. No, absolutely. We need to get up to probably about a million charging ports. Uh, and there's a lot of investment in this area. We have authorized electric utilities like PG&E here in the Bay Area to invest in that upgraded infrastructure. You have a number of private companies, EVgo, ChargePoint, Electrify America, that are putting in charging stations rapidly. Tesla has been putting in charging stations basically since it started selling these vehicles. But it is a challenge. We need to help uh, streamline the permitting uh, for these, uh, for installing these. We need to adjust our electricity rates because right now a lot of these installers really face high uh, demand charges, they're called, for when people plug in at peak times. So we do need to uh, do a lot of work to streamline and encourage more siting of these charging stations. But I think as more people buy electric vehicles, the market will increase and the demand will increase. And so I think you'll see more and more companies responding to it. But, uh, but there's no question this is one of the biggest challenges for getting to the 2035 100% zero emission goal. And let me welcome another caller. Patrick joins us. He wants to respond to what we heard from Kathy Reese Boyd. Patrick, welcome. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I 
I don't know why you're promoting this as a uh, quote unquote both sides argument when one side is promoting profits over uh, human suffering and human. One side is promoting human extinction, like your guest, and one side is promoting human survival. I understand uh, the, the way you framed it, and Patrick, I thank you for the call. Russ Mitchell, let's have you weigh in on this. I mean, that is an argument that uh, when it comes to fossil fuels, uh, there is, certainly the Green New Deal people would say there is no argument here. We have to simply do away with them as best we can. Well, the entire world economy would come to a complete halt if we did that uh, immediately. The question of uh, timelines has come up. Uh, Ethan was very optimistic about timelines. Kathy was uh, very pessimistic. Uh, but the fact is, whatever the timelines are, there is a timeline for the transition. And um, it's going to be a difficult transition. And we need all voices. Kathy uh, has her point of view. But uh, from a factual standpoint, I see nothing wrong with her uh, her argument saying for Ethan, Ethan has his facts straight. There's a little bit of a, uh, there's a lot of a po policy question about how we get there, a lot of management question about how we get there. It's a very difficult transition. So the best thing for all sides to do is to, uh, I agree, take the emotion out of it, agree that uh, we need uh, better air and cleaner air and figure out how to get there. Well, that's the big question, and it looms over any discussion like the one we're having. And again, we want to hear from you. What do you think about the move to ban gas-powered vehicles by 2035? And are you ready to make the switch to an electric car? You can give us a call now. We invite you to do that at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about Governor Newsom's ban on, it's an executive order ban on gas-powered vehicles by 2035 with Edith Alkind and Russ Mitchell. And let's bring another caller on. Michael, join us. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Um, so it's my understanding that right now uh, the car companies actually heavily subsidize the sale of their own electric vehicles. And the reason they do that is there's a mandate for uh, zero emission vehicles to be sold in the uh, state. Uh, so they then are able to sell enough in internal combustion engine vehicles at a regular price to make up for the losses that they suffer, you know, try to subsidize, trying to push electric cars out of the market. Now, I realize we're talking about 15 years, but still, are we confident that they're going to be able to make the numbers crunch out so they're not, you know, that they can economically uh, keep selling vehicles in the state. I thank you for that question, Michael. Let me go to you on this, Russ Mitchell. Yes, as, as we've uh, discussed, the the cost of the batteries, it's not falling as quickly as it has been, but uh, it is continuing to fall. Manufacturing processes are getting more efficient, so the costs are coming down. Um, most people in the industry think that uh, cost parity with gasoline engines will be here by the end of the decade, if not a lot sooner. 
Uh, there's no cost parity. I mean, cost parity. They're t talking about even lower costs than gasoline cars. Yeah, and that's possible too. Uh, we have to hit the cost parity before it goes lower. But yes, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, the question is whether people will buy the cars. We talked about charging. We talked about uh, somebody whose dealer, obviously, a Volkswagen dealer, didn't educate them in uh, what they needed to charge the car at home. So there's a lot of education to be done. Um, the, there's there's a lot of friction involved in buying an electric car, and I am a big fan of electric cars. Don't get me wrong, uh, but there's a lot of friction involved. And the big question is whether, even if there's price parity, whether consumers will flock to these cars in large enough numbers uh, to meet the uh, the mandate. That's an open question. And again, uh, Russ Mitchell is uh, automotive reporter. With the Los Angeles Times, uh, Gladys Lamon is Executive Director of California Environmental Justice Alliance, and she joins us now. And welcome to the program. Good to have you. Good morning. Good morning to you. I want to get your reaction first to Governor Newsom's executive order. Uh, it's half-step and incremental for many environmentalists, even some saying too little too late in the wake of the climate crisis and just how urgent things are. Um, are we talking about uh, something that you look upon favorably, or you think it's just uh, maybe... At this point, much more action needed. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, comment on the executive order. I'd like to also respond to some of the comments that other guests have made. The, the executive order by far lacks the ambition that's required to meet the scale of our climate crises, as well as the air pollution crises that many communities have been dealing with now for decades. It's piecemeal and incremental, and there are inherent contradictions in it as well. And again, it's just not commensurate with the crisis. Um, you know, we uh, are acting based on science, um, and uh, to the some of the comments that have been made about how we're not able to make the transition, you know, COVID has shown us that we're more than capable of making a mass transition at a global scale. COVID, of course, was an unanticipated crisis. We have known about the climate crisis for many, many years. We're equipped with information, with the technology. All we need is a political will, and we need for the root cause of the crisis, which is the fossil fuel industry, to stop lying and manipulating the public and government. You know, it's talking points like some of the ones that have um, been um, raised today are the only aim is to prolong its profits, right, to prolong its industry. Uh, we know the fossil fuel industry is also highly subsidized. And so we need to take those dollars and invest in having a sustainable, equitable future. And while we, of course, need to act on science, we also should be acting based on concern and care for each other. You know, I believe that the people who've lost their homes, who've lost loved ones would beg to differ, um, you know, when asked to take emotion out of it. There is a lot of work before us to get to where we need to be to mitigate the worst of the climate crisis. We need to ensure that it's affordable. But you know, where we are right now in our state, while we have made some real gains, it doesn't get us close to meeting our emissions goals. And most importantly, it doesn't do enough to ensure that those communities at the front lines of the fossil fuel industry, um, that they will benefit first and most, and that will repair the damage that's been done to those um, primarily communities of color who've been dealing with the toxic impacts of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, I brought that up with uh, Kathy Rees-Boyd, and I want to, I'm glad that you mentioned it too, because what else could be done to protect those communities, those at-risk communities, or for that matter, frontline communities uh, that I alluded to when I spoke to her earlier? Um, what are you advocating? Well, when, when we need to address the root cause of the climate crisis. We know, again, that's the fossil fuel industry. We need to stop uh, continuing to expand. So we need to the 
government has our state government has not um, yet committed to stopping um, the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. Again, those are um, primarily cited in low-income communities, communities of color. And we also need to start seriously addressing those health and safety impacts that have deteriorated the health of those communities that have impacted their life expectancy. So we can start by instituting a common sense, science-based health and safety buffer zone. 2,500 feet is what the data supports to ensure that families are not raising their kids next to drilling operations that are not only emitting um, uh, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, but also particulate matter, carcinogens, et cetera. Um, so those two steps, a setback, as well as just stopping the permitting, stopping the expansion of what we know is causing the crisis um, to happen immediately. We need to prioritize protecting lives and future generations and developing a robust economy of the future, which is a clean, renewable energy-based economy. Well, we also need to produce more energy, don't we? That's exactly right. Yes. And we're currently not deploying clean energy fast enough. And therefore, we're also missing out on the opportunity um, to do that, to create clean jobs and healthier communities and ensure that we can meet our goals. So the governor could sign an executive order um, that uh, directs the ARB, the Air Resources Board, to adopt a 30 million metric tons emissions target and also encourage or direct the, the California Public Utilities Commission to deploy 20 gigawatts of battery storage and 30 gigawatts of renewable resources by 2030, which is close to what we need. And that directive can also, again, prioritize the de deployment um, in environmental justice communities and target investments so that we can get rid of um, fossil fuel-based um, gas plants and continue to ensure system reliability. And again, we're talking right now with Gladys Lamont. Uh, can you sp spend some more time with us? We've got a few more minutes. Sure. Uh, she's okay. Executive Director of California Environmental Justice Alliance. I want to get another caller on here. Actually, it's a battery engineer calling us. Marty, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Yeah, can hear you fine. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I, I've been in the industry for about 10 years. Uh, I was pretty green coming into it. Um, I, I think just the level of development in the past 10 years is astonishing. And I think, you know, another 10, 15 years from now, it's not unrealistic to think that we won't meet that affordable car for the masses. So I don't understand what the, um, what the pushback is about that. I mean, we're already looking at $35,000 base cars coming out from manufacturers. And, and I think the, the trouble from the, the greater industry is that they, there's a pushback because they know it's inevitable. We're, the, the EV industry is hurting their bottom line. It's going to be a question of, whether or not they can keep up and whether or not they're going to be a liable or a, a company in the future to, to compete. Same with fossil fuel industry. They know that it's, it's a question of, uh, uh, you know, dollars and cents. It's, it's not going to make sense from a dollar standpoint for them to, to keep doing status quo when the, the battery technology just keeps advancing. And um, that said, though, it needs, I don't know that, you know, electric cars are the answer for everybody. I think, you know, Governor Newsom needs to kind of increase public transit and other forms of transportation that are not just EVs. And EV is not a solvable solution for every person. Marty, thank and, you for uh, that. Uh, what about this idea? In fact, I'm getting a lot of emails along these lines. Uh, Ethan Elkin, I'm going to go back to you on this, that 
This is not the panacea. Um, let me look at just an example from a listener who writes, one of your guests said we cannot replace 36 million cars by 2035. We do not need to replace 36 million cars by 2035. We need to be able to make, sell, power, charge, and service the number of new cars sold each year. Is that feasible by 2035? And then Gene writes, I would get an electric car today, but if I drive a long distance, there's no infrastructure to support it. I'm waiting for quick charge stations all over the country or perhaps a standardized battery that could be switched out at service stations. What's possible in this area, uh, arena, excuse me. And uh, Michael says, what happens when we've been out of electricity for days due to fire? Then we need a flee and uncharged vehicles. Electric vehicles are great, but they're less independent. In other words, a lot of questions coming in about electric vehicles as the answer. And as the, as I said, the panacea, and there's some concern and skepticism, Ethan. Well, I mean, these are all, you know, in some cases, pretty legitimate questions. But I think the technology, as I've been, you know, discussing, has, is definitely improving and addressing a lot of these challenges. But I think the bottom line with battery electric vehicles, and Marty really touched on this, that the tech is just better than internal combustion engines. The, the quality of the driving experience is better. Electricity is a cheaper fuel. It's a it's a more resilient fuel. I mean, despite power outages, you know, we've had plenty of gasoline shortages and a lot of gasoline fluctuation in terms of price. So I think the technology is better. That the main issue that you often hear about is you know, people like Kathy complaining about the batteries and their impact. And, you know, as I mentioned, we've done studies on this. We have a report out sustainable drive, sustainable supply that goes into the supply chain of batteries, but it's a, it's as, as reliable, if not more so than what we're currently facing with oil and gas supplies, not to mention uh, all the local environmental impacts from, uh, from oil and gas exploration. And, and Gladys was talking about all the frontline workers who are at risk and frontline residents living near these facilities. But there are certainly questions to be addressed when it comes to this transition. We have 15 years to do it. We've already made a huge amount of progress. And I really can't underscore enough how amazing it is that Tesla, uh, with their Model 3, a $35,000 base car, without any federal tax credits uh, and very few state subsidies was actually able to outsell the Toyota Camry and the Honda to become the number one selling vehicle in California in the first quarter of this year. And so that's, you know, that's without the, the subsidies that other electric vehicle companies are getting right now. So I think the future is very bright. I think I, I, clearly we need other solutions too. It's not going to be just about vehicles and California has a, a, a suite of policies related to the electricity grid. And it's also about electric buses, electric bikes, electric scooters, uh, electric trucks. So this is much bigger than just passenger vehicles, but it's something that we can do in the long run. It will benefit people in terms of quality of life, in terms of the climate, and in terms of their bottom line, too, because of the savings from batteries versus Let me just read a few comments here uh, as we come up on a break. Uh, meanwhile, Newsom continues madly approving water and air polluting fracking permits. And another listener says, I think it was a very poor decision to make this announcement about gas-powered cars this close to the election. He's just adding fuel to some of the Republican arguments and false claims against socialism. People like Devin Nunes will jump all over this and call it a socialist overreach. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. And let me um, see if we can get another caller on here. Linda, join us. You're on the air. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. I can. Great. Yeah, I'm calling because I was actually offended by the comments, take the emotion out of this. I'm a mother. And as a mother, I have the right to be worried about my children's future. And as a mother, I have a right to be concerned if my children are being impacted by the fossil fuel industry. So that was a completely inappropriate comment. Um, I'm part of a group of mothers called Mothers Out Front, and we're standing in strong support of Last Chance Alliance, which is working to pressure Governor Newsom to take stronger action. 
we cannot just measure greenhouse gas reductions. We have to measure the numbers of lives saved, the number of preterm birth defects avoided, the number of cases of asthma, COPD, heart disease avoided. And the only way to do that is to address the supply of fossil fuels and the oil and gas extraction and refining in our state. I want to just paint a quick picture. Imagine on one side of a fence, there's a child swinging in a swing. On the other side of the fence, there are people wearing hazmat suits working on oil and gas extraction on the other side of the fence. This is happening in California. We are the only oil and gas producing state, the only major one, that allows drilling next door to homes, schools, playgrounds. It's unconscionable. And for Governor Newsom to not address this and only focus on the demand side is not being the climate leader that we need, that our children need. So I really hope he'll listen to us to stop new fossil fuel permits, to drop existing production in a just and managed transition that cares for workers, and to roll out immediately setback limits to put buffer zones between the toxic oil and gas drilling and where our children and communities are living, breathing, playing, working every day. All right, Linda, I thank you for those pointed comments. appreciate hearing from you. And uh, I'm going to hear from some other listeners who are emailing us. Uh, listener writes, I've never understood why we keep bailing out these industries that are so harmful to the environment and society. Everybody said the transition to work from home would take forever, and here we are. The malls went out of business, and Amazon is repurposing them. Get over it and do what needs to be done. And a tweet from a listener says, get rid of the gas. Hold the oil and car companies accountable. Expose all their lies and doublespeak. If I can get over the thrill driving an eight-cylinder gas hog, anyone can. Another listener uh, says, uh, I'd get an electric car today, but I drive a long distance. There's no infrastructure to support it. I'm waiting for a quick charge station. Oh, sorry, I think I read that comment before. I wanted to get to the affordability question here. And let me go to you on this, Russ Mitchell. Listener says, I've been working and saving for at least a year to try to Get a Tesla so that I can reduce my impact on the environment. I can't afford it at the current price, and like a lot of people, I can't get a loan. Now they want to add subscriptions to the features that make the car worth buying in the first place? Thoughts, Russ? Yeah, I do have thoughts. The uh, uh, Number one, uh, Ethan, if you find somebody who paid only $35,000 for a Tesla Model 3, please uh, let me know. Uh, the average price is uh, up in the uh, mid to high 40s. Um, but uh, there are... There are more uh, affordable cars coming in. The uh, Volkswagen just the other day announced uh, their ID4 compact SUV, um, which uh, with the uh, incentives and gas savings will, uh, they say, compete with the Toyota RAV4 gas engine and the Honda CRV gas engine cars. Um, uh, Ford is coming out with the uh, Mach-E, uh, much more affordable uh, lately. There are more and more, and, and uh, cars like the Chevy Bolt and Nissan Leaf, very, very affordable. Uh, they're out there now. You can get really good deals on them. Uh, Tesla is not the only electric car company out there, and uh, there are more and more electric cars coming out on the market now. So yeah, uh, some, uh, do some shopping some around, and you find something uh, that will fit your budget. So getting some calls along those lines. Thank you for that, Russ. Uh, and I want to go back, uh, if I may, Gladys Lamont, to you uh, with a response from you, if I could, to an email from a listener named Marina who writes, should we think about building better clean energy mass transportation rather than focusing on personal transportation? If we offered fast and timely public transportation, such as Europe or Asia, we might decrease the reliance on personal transportation. That's exactly right. 
Our public transportation system is completely inadequate. It's antiquated for the times, and that's where we need to invest in ensuring that we have uh, a public transportation system that um, makes sense uh, for people's daily lives, that's affordable. And as we plan and hopefully rapidly plan for a complete managed decline of the fossil fuel industry, we need to make sure that it's equitable, that it's a just transition for both workers and communities, and that we don't widen racial and economic inequities. And again, I think there's a lot that we can learn from the COVID crisis of how you know we um, have widened inequities in many respects. And so while we don't have a lot of time, we need to act with urgency, again, to meet the crisis. We have uh, a, a lot of smart professionals and data and um, precedent set from other jurisdictions as well to get there. We'll leave it there. Ladies Lamon, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your being with us. And I want to thank Ethan Elkine and Russ Mitchell. And of course, thank you, our listeners. We are here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, and an hour is repeated in the evening, 10 to 11. Stay tuned, in fact, for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. And Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer, and our intern is Jameson Weiss. Our executive uh, editor is Ethan Tovin-Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you for being a part of this morning's program, and for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, take care and be safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.